You're listening to Face Off, episode 123, recorded May 30th, 2011. Welcome to Face Off, your face-to-face web technology podcast. I am one of your esteemed hosts, Jade Robbins. And I am your other excited, ready-to-be-here host, Mark Sanborn. <laughs> In this podcast, we talk about web technology, things like web development, social media, and web entrepreneurship. As always, you can get the show notes with links to everything we talk about uh, by going to faceoffshow.com. Hey, Mark, it is Memorial Day. I want to start off by saying thank you to all of our active serving military veterans and those who in the future might serve us in the military. Thank you. Uh, I'm a very, very proud American. I believe very strongly in freedom, and I think that our military are the are the backbone of that freedom. That's great. Yeah. Uh, it's always good to recognize holidays and, and your... Um, People that fight for your freedom and all that. Yeah. So thank not you. Just, it's not a camping holiday. It's not just an excuse to go camping. Exactly. Uh, although that's what we tried to do this weekend and we <laughs> failed. Yeah. I mean, that's the hard part is, you know, holidays are always a good time to, to hang out with your family and see everybody, but a lot of them have a purpose. And, and sometimes, you know, like I think Memorial Day is a classic example of one that is forgotten. Uh, but being it is such a holiday, usually when we record the show, it's Monday night. We've been to work all day, but it's a nice day off. You and I are wearing our nice new track pants, which uh, I don't know if anyone knows. We call them comfy pants. That's the code word for them. <laughs> They're really nice. I like them. You know, it, it sounds silly, but like I've never owned a pair of track pants until this year when I bought a pair at Target on sale. And I came home and I put them on and I was like, holy cow, look at, like I can like sit so comfortably. Like I could, who knew it? These things can be so comfortable. <laughs> That they are. Yeah. You're They're basically know. like athletic shorts that go all the way. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Best way to describe them. Absolutely. You know, also, I think I'm coming down to something. I don't, I've been sick this year so many times. So if I sound weird, it's because I think my tonsils are, are, are swollen, you know? So uh, if I sound like extra, you know, gurgly or whatever, please. Please be gentle. All right, let's get into our news and follow-ups. The first one I want to talk about um, is earlier this week, uh, there was an announcement that Google is going to be sunsetting a bunch of their old APIs, deprecating them, uh, which, you know, is nothing too too crazy. I mean, that happens a lot, right? But uh, one of the particular APIs they were deprecating that got a lot of attention uh, was that they're actually getting rid of the translation API. And there's a lot of people out there who really love the translation API. And, and I was reading Hack News, and there's this one quote where it was just a link that said, um, you know, the quote was, why should any developer, any company who, which wants to build a valuable product in the long term use any of your APIs ever again? And it linked to this comment where this guy talked about it. You know, uh, the big thing with this one is, is they, they, they were getting rid of it because of, you know, supposedly abuse is the reason. It's not that no one was using it. It's not that, you know, it wasn't useful. It was abuse. Um, and so I kind of want to talk a little bit. We've talked about this before, you know, uh, and people were really angry about this. So we had, um, there were some comments, you know, People were like, you know, I can't believe you're doing this to Google. You're ruining my, co- you know, my company that saves me $20,000 a year because I just use your API. And then there was uh, a blog post I thought was really good. It was called Google is not your daddy, uh, you know, and then parentheses it's, or long term reliance on APIs is as bad as outsourcing. And it was, a, it was an article talking about how if you are dependent upon, you know, particularly free APIs, uh, you know, that's as bad as outsourcing. Your core competency is not within your own company. It's very true. 
Uh, it's always uh, we've talked about this before with people relying uh, or creating businesses solely around Twitter's API and how it's kind of a risky proposition. Yeah, and I mean, and it hits them every once in a while when Twitter decides that they want to put out their own mobile clients. You know, they want to control the quote Twitter experience. So they put out their own mobile client, and then you get kind of a conflict of interest. There's all these people who use this API that Twitter is generous enough to give out, right? Um, and 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 then, so I mean, a lot of this article, a lot of these articles and stuff. Uh, one thing that uh, sort of brought it out was people were saying, well, you know, um, well, I guess the question is like APIs. I don't think are bad. I think if you pay for an API, then it's okay. You have an expectation of service. So people use these Google APIs, and it's just kind of assumed, and it's, and it's a poor assumption. It's assumed that Google will keep it free forever and always have it running when you use anything. like So there's billions of websites out there that use the Google Maps API. Uh, and the assumption is that's going to be around forever. you know. But the truth is, when it becomes a hassle or Google is not getting any value out of it, they're going to get rid of it. They are a business in the end. And so things like Google App Engine, which is funny because it started out free, and so a lot of people were like, oh, well, you can scale easily with it. Uh, Google App Engine, you can pay for it. And in fact, they made some ripples this this week because they made announcements about the Google App Engine pricing change, and it was, was you know more expensive for smaller developers. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think I like the expectation of paying for an API. You know, if I'm going to build upon it, it's going to be a core part of my business. I want to pay for that service. Now, the sort of Google is not your daddy articles, you know, saying it's as bad as outsourcing, it still holds, right? You know, your core competency, if you use the Google Transition API, their core competency, competency if your app is to translate something, is not in-house, and that can be a problem. But I think, you know, if you, the people were complaining, they were like, well, you know, if it's abuse, why don't you put in rate limiting? Why don't you make people pay for it? And I think that's a valid argument. Yeah, um, it seems weird because translation, you'd think, would be a, some you know be a popular thing uh so but i guess you said it was abuse mainly that they showed it was up, abuse, not lack was, of abuse well it was that was the reason they cited it was due to abuse so a lot of people were saying well you know put some rate limiting in you know where you can pay if you want to hit it more or whatever like that but google didn't do any of that they just are deprecating it december 1st this year it will be no more remember seeing a comment of uh, someone saying you know google's supposed to be one of the smartest uh, companies uh, around in the tech and they can't figure out a way to stop the abuse other than <laughs> shutting it down yeah. is kind of uh, a poor excuse yeah i mean i feel like it is i feel google definitely can figure out a way to handle the abuse um, but then again i was also sort of upset with all these people that were like oh my god my business needs this what are you doing you know and it's like well first of all there's other translation apis out there microsoft has one there's a couple other companies that do it uh, and the thing is, you know, it, it's like, oh man, you're taking away this ridiculously, you know, this overused API that I'm getting for free and I'm so angry at you, Google. And I find that to be just slightly ridiculous. Maybe it's the opportunity to program your own and sell it as a uh, commercial API. You know, I mean, yeah, exactly. If, if translation is really at the heart of your company, you should have contingency plans. You should be looking at other translate APIs, you know have a beta Microsoft Translate API connector or something or or try and work on it yourself. Exactly. I mean, that's, you know, it, it feels like you're just sort of sidestepping. And there's all these sort of mashup API companies out there. And one of the reasons I've never, you know, really pursued that very heavily is for this reason. It scares me. I don't like the idea of, you know, the App Store. Everyone complains when Apple changes something. You're in Apple's walled garden. You have to deal with it. And you have to know the risk when you go into it that this could happen and completely change the way you do business. Absolutely. Speaking of Google, the other big announcement they had uh, this week was Google Wallet. Uh, Google Wallet is a service slash device slash app 
Uh, basically, what it does is you get a new Google Nexus S or any new Google phone, supposedly in the future, and it has a chip on it called uh, Near something something. Basically, what it, the chip does is it allows you to sort of tap your phone on things and pay for things wirelessly. So there's an app on your phone that talks to this device, which is connected to your Citibank MasterCard card or your prepaid Google card right now. Uh, and you can just tap it, pay for it. Um, it this is, I, I did you read the announcement at all, Mark? Did you pay attention to any of this? It, you know, it was kind of like this big announcement. And after I heard it, I was kind of like, well, that's kind of a big announcement for nothing. Um, I, you know, I, I heard a little bit about it, um, about how you can kind of pay without, um, you know, wirelessly, so you don't have to right. get your credit card out, credit card out and stuff. Um, and it struck me that it was kind of very similar to what Square is trying to do lately. Yeah, kind uh, of really bringing payments to your phone. Um, I mean, this is to to pay for stuff, not really to to take credit cards. So, I mean, the other big thing too is they're pushing. It's funny everyone's doing this. Google Wallet talks about oh now you know based on where your phone is, Google Wallet can send you offers for coupons. You know, like the whole coupon, coupon, location, coupon, coupon thing, and it's just you're seeing it everywhere. <laughs> and I'm tired of hearing about it. You know, the truth is, it's funny. This was a giant announcement for me about nothing. It's in one phone. It's going to be in the new Nexus that's coming out sometime. Uh, it only supports your your Citibank PayPass MasterCard or prepaid Google card. There's only so many retailers that are going to take it. You know, and again, I think we're seeing these where I personally think that just because the power of Google is behind something doesn't mean it's going to be successful. I don't see this taking off. It seems just a little too not interesting. Or I feel like they shouldn't make such a big to do about it. You know, if it's so limited, it has such a limited. It's not like it's not like Square, right? I can use almost any existing phone with a headphone jack. You know, I have to have this particular phone. I have to have this particular card. I have to go to a particular retailer that handles it. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I thought I was under the impression that you could you know, kind of hook up any credit card, but if it's limited to a specific phone and credit card, that's definitely uh, not a great announcement. Well, you know, uh, it's not that earth shattering. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, Google's like coming soon to others. And it's like, well, again, you announced it. I wish you would have had more. I mean, I understand it's difficult for you to do that, but. Um, Oh, interesting. So I did some, I did some like Google, I did the location, you know, to find people near me. What's cool about this, okay, this is interesting. I didn't know this. It's just basically any MasterCard PayPass, which I have a, actually have a MasterCard, a Citibank MasterCard PayPass in it. Any PayPass terminal, which apparently there are even some here in Bozeman. Uh, so it uses the same technology, just a chip on your phone that does the same stuff as the PayPass thing. Um, so there's some retailers that will do it around here. It looks like according to here, uh, like I'm looking at Dairy Queen and I'm pretty sure Dairy Queen doesn't have a very fancy, uh, card. I, here, I remember. I'm right. pretty sure I saw Subway on there, which would be pretty cool. Cause I, uh, eat a lot of Subway. You like, you like um, the Subway, huh? Uh, the other thing is I hope they use uh standard, you know, HTTPS, SSL and you know, like right now there's some credit cards that have, um, RFID and some, I think Bluetooth or something similar to that. That's, uh, totally not secure. And yeah. so hopefully if they do do the wireless, they do it right and use SSL. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, a big bunch of big people were sort of freaking out about the security of it. I didn't really pay attention to that as much. Um, the one nice thing about this is when you do pay with the card, I, I watched a little bit of the sort of the announcement, the live blog of the announcement. One cool thing is you can put, um, what do you call them, those, those cards like where you go to like CVS, you know, you have a CVS card where... Um, oh, gift cards. No, gift not cards gift or? cards. They're like where, you know, I come here all the time and you know how much Oh, I, yeah. I can't remember what they're Are called. you a member of Loyal our shopping loyalty club? cards? So loyalty cards, uh, it can you know it can do loyalty cards on there too for these particular retailers. Um, when you attach a card to the Google Wallet, what's cool about it is you don't have to have the card with you. 
Um, you know, and when you go to pay for it, it doesn't pop up the card, so you can't get people that can look over it. Uh, you can't get people that do. Uh, you can't do the skimming with it unless you know somehow they forgot to crack the wireless stuff. But it's pretty near. You have to be really close. It's not like you know you can walk into a gas station to detect everyone's stuff there. You have to be really close to it. Um, I mean, it's a cool. It's a cool idea. I want to see this. I would love to see this happen in the future. But right now, it's just not compelling enough for me to say, yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to go all the way. Um, Especially since, like, I mean, it's you'd only have buy-in from MasterCard right now. I have a feeling this PayPass technology is probably theirs or whatever, you know, and they're going to have to, you know, Visa's going to have to, like, you know, lease the technology from them if they want to use it. And it's like, yeah, you know. This is kind of cool. You can get baseball tickets on your phone, and then when you go to the baseball game, you just, uh, you know, scan your phone or walk through the thing, yeah. and it detects it. Uh, we'll see. I don't know. I, I feel like... I feel like they made a lot of promises. We'll see how smoothly it works or uh, how far it goes on. All right. So uh, let's thank our first sort of sponsor for our episode, which is the app we wrote called Agile Task. Agile Task is your dead simple task management tool with things like achievements. Uh, it's really simple to use. It has an API if you want to write anything against it. Speaking of APIs, this is an API you pay for, so you have expectations. I'm just going to say. Um, but check it out. Go to agiletask.me. It's under... Uh, one of our favorite apps. I use it every single day. All right, so let's get into our geek tool of the week. Mark, you and I, we went for, actually went for a hike this weekend. Uh, we were planning on going uh, camping, but the weather turned nasty. But for one day, one day, the weather was nice, nice enough to go for a hike. Uh, so we went for a hike. The sun was shining. And the one thing I didn't bring because I struggle with this so much is sunscreen. I'm a very, I'm a very fair-skinned guy, as you could say. Uh, I sunburn very easily. Uh, but I have a big problem with sunscreen, and that's because it's nasty lotion. It's always sunscreen lotion or some spray-on stuff. Uh, either way, I never like it because you spray it on, you have to wipe it, your hands get greasy, it's a pain in the butt. So that's why I was excited to see. I haven't tried these yet, but um, these are Super Goop SPF 30 sunscreen wipes. So uh, what it is, is like a little wipe, kind of like a baby wipe you can bring along with you, and you just kind of rub it around your skin, and it leaves sunscreen enough for you. Uh, so you don't have to deal with like the nasty lotion. Like, do you ever do this where you're like, oh, okay, I'm gonna put sunscreen on, and you get way too much sunscreen, and then you have like this big streak on your face or big pile in your hands, and you're like, how am I gonna get rid of all this sunscreen? And it doesn't count as a liquid for the TSA, so you're going on vacation uh -huh. and you need <laughs> some of that sunscreen. You don't have to bring a bottle that's like an ounce and a half or something <laughs> stupid. Exactly. So there's two ways um, to get it. Uh, one is they kind of have like the baby wipe sort of pack, like the plastic pack. Um, they have that, but the other cool ways you can get individually wrapped towelettes so that you can, um, you can, uh, just bring four along with you or whatever, tear them up while you're on the trail and reapply. Cause that's about the big theme of sunscreen. You have to reapply. And a lot of times if you've ever had to carry sunscreen, you put it in your bag or something. And then later you open up your bag and your sunscreen's leaked out all over the place. And it's <laughs> terrible. It's all over and it stinks and it's greasy and I hate it. So check it out. The Super Goop sunscreen wipes. We have both the big pack and the individually uh, packed little ones on our um, show notes. So let's go. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say that's it for the geek tools. Let's get on to the web apps that we got this week. All right. So our first web app. A while ago, we talked about, I can't remember what it's called, like Kitten Place or something. It was a place, it was a, a website that let you put placeholder images using, that were kittens. It was really cute. Uh, so I wanted to point to the Kitten Image Bookmarklet. Bookmark lit. 
what it is is a little web, a uh, little tiny bookmarklet that you can put on your website. And then what it does is when you go to that website, you click the bookmarklet, and it will replace all of the images with images of kittens. Now you ask, Jade, this is terrible. Why would you ever want to do this? Well, sometimes even if you're at a legitimate website it might be considered not safe for work. You know, there might be images, even like sometimes you read one and there might be like uh, the links on the side are like to celebrity gossip blogs with women in bikinis and stuff. And sometimes that can get you in trouble at work or whatever. So if you go to a website and you think the images are enough that you just don't want people to see them, click the bookmarklet and then it will be replaced with images of kittens, which will keep you very happy. Very cool. Yeah, we talked about, uh, I think they use the same... Uh... They use PlaceKit, which is what we talked about before, which allows developers to, you know, if you need an image that's 300 by 300, you just uh, do placekit.com slash 300, 300. Um, but this is cool for, you know, like non-safe-for-work websites or, or just, if you don't know. Just cute and quirky. <clears throat> you know, it's kind of fun. Like, who doesn't love kittens? That way you can, you know, if you ever want to see what your website looked like, if you had a bunch of kitten images instead of regular images, check out the uh, kitten bookmarklet. Our other web app this week is the Easy Bar Tricks website. So this weekend, uh, I had the, or this week actually, I had the joy of going downtown uh, to the bars uh, here in Bozeman. And I don't know if anyone, I mean, if anyone who listens to the show knows this, I really don't like, I really don't like being downtown. Uh, the, the bar scene is just not my thing. It's hard to talk. But, you know, I figured out one way that might make it a little bit better, and that's using easybartricks.com to learn little magic tricks or little fun tricks and stuff like that that you can show your friends at the bar. So, Mark, we used to watch a podcast called Scam School, which was ran by Brian Brushwood, where he did a lot of little funky tricks like this. Uh, and so this site just has a lot more of them. They're like goofy little magic tricks or goofy little tricks to get your friends. Uh, they have videos where they explain it, and I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, cool. Um, I, you know, I would say if I, if I was going to give some advice, I would say learn like two or three and go practice them and try them exactly. before you, you know, like don't <laughs> like watch every single one and be like, oh, this is cool, this is cool, and because uh, otherwise you'll forget them. You'll get to the bar and be like, oh yeah, what was that thing again? <laughs> Um, yeah, exactly. So. But you know, but yeah, are, I mean, you know, like a lot of the like the little ways to like make a card sort of disappear and make coins do goofy things. And the truth is, people love them. I mean, you're like a you're like a, a hit at the bar, Mark. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, you know, like and some sometimes you're like, well, magic's not my thing. It's kind of corny. But uh, there's also some games you can play, some kind of puzzles and mind games that you can play. They're pretty fun. Uh, so. Check those so out. So check too. it out. Go to easybartricks.com. You can learn how to do it there. The cool little videos, fun stuff. Uh, I love things like that. All right. So if you guys have some news, a follow-up, a web app, or a topic you want us to talk about, go to faceoffshow.com slash feedback there. You can like us on Facebook. You can send us a tweet or email us. Love to hear from you guys. We really appreciate it. Before we get into our topic this week, I want to thank our second sponsor, which is Rocket Ship It, Mark Sanborn's multi-care shipping solution. Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about rocket shipping? Well, now, since we're on the subject of APIs, uh, not everybody has a great, easy-to-use, RESTful API. Um, so a lot of the carriers, UPS, FedEx, et cetera, have very complex APIs. Um, they're very, you know, very cool. They allow you to do pretty much everything that can be done behind the scenes, you know, generate labels, tracking, find out if an address is uh, residential or commercial, um, find out if an address even exists, you know, um, for address validation purposes and things like that. Rocketshipit makes all that really simple. Most of the um, operations in Rocketshipit are, you know, between four and five or four and ten lines of code. Um, 
So no longer do you have to read through piles and piles of pages of uh, APIs. Just uh, go to RocketShipIt, uh, sign up, purchase one of the modules that you're using, and you'll be able to implement advanced shipping features into your website. Check it out by going to rocketship.it. All right, Mark, let's get into our topic of this week, which I'm really excited to talk about. We've been kind of brewing it you know, in our head a little bit while how we, how we wanted to do this, and finally we kind of said we should just talk about a little bit of an introduction into uh, you know, the term right now is called NoSQL databases, and that just basically means it's, it's, it's not like your typical sort of relational database system, right? Yeah, so you know, in the NoSQL kind of uh, community, they don't really like the name that, that they ended up getting, um, which, is the, <laughs> which is NoSQL, because a lot of the systems actually do have kind of SQL queries in them, or they're, they're able to be queried. Um, but basically what they are is they're not SQL in the traditional way where you make structured tables and uh, you know create your tables ahead of time with SQL. There's some major groups of them uh, that you can kind of you can kind of um, th so they're not all the same. They they take a, a different step, approach yeah. to how they solve uh, basically the this the act of storing data. Uh, so we're going to talk about the th the I think there's three or four major types and you know why people are uh, using them and why they're popular right now. Um, so yeah, like I said, they don't usually use fixed table structures. Um, they're primarily used right now, especially by the big companies like Facebook. Uh, Foursquare, uh, you know all the all the big uh, startups and and companies that are handling ridiculous amounts of data, they're used to scale horizontally. And sometimes you know people hear that you know scale scale horizontally, and they you know what does that mean? It means that you can basically just add more commodity nodes um, as opposed to adding more really expensive hardware uh, and really beefy machines which is typically required for, you know, if you're going to run like a giant database and you, you don't want to like, uh, you know, you can't sh easily shard, which, you know, like, or right. partition the data amongst three or four uh, very large machines. Right. You would, you know, you want to just add another little machine to the, to the cluster of machines. Right. Like, I guess this I is really important for like uh, people that are using Amazon or cloud uh, services to host. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like the way I always kind of look at it is when you're drawing like a little systems diagram, you know, in like Visio or OmniGraph or whatever, you know, you like put a server and then, you know, let's say if you want to say like, oh, well, no, instead we're going to buy a much bigger server, a bigger intense server, you know, you'd you like you'd sort of make it like you'd stack more on top of it, you know, sort of vertically. Uh, but with it, you know, horizontal scaling, it's kind of like, you know, we just had it, we're adding more nodes to the cluster and you usually put them sort of like side by side and then the big giant cloud of the internet connects to, you know, any one of those numbers of nodes. So that's kind of like how I remember sort of scaling horizontally versus vertically. So why would you use them? Uh, the primary reasons right now are scalability, like we talked about, performance, if you want to access the data really easily, um, you know, you're having millions of uh, records that you're dealing with. Um, and in certain cases, they're easier to implement. Uh, remember, like you don't have to specify table structures ahead of time, so you don't even have to worry about migrations and things like that. And, right. and it's, you have you have other problems, so don't like <laughs> jump up and joy jump up for joy just yet. But um, in some cases, they actually can be easier to implement than than whipping out the old MS or uh, MySQL or uh, a traditional database. When would you not use them? Um, so this is kind of a good question. It's kind of a there's kind of a misconception um, where NoSQL is a replacement for RD 
BMS, you know, a t- traditional database. And a lot of times I don't really see as far as, I mean, as for the articles that I've read and things, I don't see where companies are just replacing their traditional databases. They're adding on, they're using NoSQL in certain uh, areas of their, their data and not just, they're not, it's not like, um, we're going to take, we're going to get rid of MySQL and just replace it with this. Um, and the reason for that is because they are good at certain areas, uh, and not everything. Um, and, and one of those areas is if you don't, um, if you don't know ahead of time how you're going to query the data, you probably don't want to use a NoSQL solution. Um, just because, uh, a lot of them, especially the key value based ones, you're, it's really difficult. You'd actually have to store more, um, data in order to, uh, do what you would like. So SQL, you just store it in columns and you can say like, give me this and this, right. you know, join by this. Um, you don't have that option in some of these other ones. Right. Um, so yeah, so usually they're not implement they're they're implemented side by side, like I said, um, and so let's get on to, to the CAP theorem, and that is um, CAP, so consistency, availability, and partition tolerance, and so this is kind of why you don't really just replace NoSQL right. for RDBMS, and that is you can so the theorem says that you can only satisf- satisfy two of them but not three so like consistency usually in a database the data is the data like it's a transactional based system like when when it goes in no it like locks it and like no other uh another client can't update that exact row at that same time mm-hmm. if you have your data separate you know if it's a distributed system and it's separated over 4,000 machines, um, it's really, really, really difficult to make sure that <laughs> all 4,000 machines have the exact same data totally. at the exact same time, you know, in real time. So um, so that's what consistency is all about. Availability, um, so that, that's like node failures don't prevent survivors from continuing to operate. Uh, and then partition tolerance, the system continues to operate despite uh, like message or data loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, so like databases are really consistent, but they might not have the partition tolerance or the availability. So right. that's kind of where you got to kind of pick your areas where NoSQL is strong. Right, exactly. Uh, and I think, so I think one of the things um, that makes, uh, so people are kind of always saying like, well, you know, the, the big argument is that our, uh, you know, NoSQL, DocumentDB's key value stores are just, are way, are way faster. And so people think like, well, that means then I should move to it, right? Because I want a fast database. Well, the in the in the way that works is that in general, like with RB with uh, re- relational databases, uh, you get you get things you get joins. The whole point is you partition your data out, you you separate the data into chunks into tables, and then you can run joins against that. And that's very powerful. It's really easy to organize your data mentally. But the problem is joins take time. They are very expensive operations. So with uh, you know NoSQL slash DocDBs or whatever. What you do is you're basically just getting a, a chunk of data back, and inside that data can be parsed however you want. So um, a lot of these store the data inside as JSON. So what you do is you just you just get that big fat chunk of JSON, and then you handle it in the JavaScript. So the database is really fast. You're just like, give me this record, boom, here's a big fat chunk of data. And with a lot of them, you know, like you can have your columns, a super column with like sub columns, so that you can actually have the data inside the data. So you aren't doing any joins. You're just returning that one glob of data with all that sub data that you would usually have to join for in an RBDMS. Um, 
is already in there. So it is very fast to retrieve and very fast to write. Now, the problem is that you have to take care of that normalization inside your app. So like, you know, with MySQL, if I decide to change a column, I run an operation to change that column from an int to a double or something like that. In 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 most, you know, RBD messages, or I mean, in most DocDBs or NoSQL databases, it, it's still just, it's a blob. It's the blob that returns. So if I want to make sure every bit of data inside is changed, I have to take care of that myself. The database doesn't do that. The database just returns what I asked for it as fast as it possibly can. That was a good uh, description of what it is, much better than what I was uh, going for. Um, another thing is like, so the, some use, some really easy use cases to see uh, is things that don't necessarily have to be consistent all the time. And an example of that would be um, caching, you know, like if you right. just want to run your normal MySQL type queries that take really long time and then store that data in a key and then just return that each time a web, you know, a person comes to the site for the next five minutes, um, that's a perfect use, use case because it doesn't matter if that gets to every single node at the exact same time. It's just a performance helper. Right, exactly. So like if you want to use uh, one of these kind of NoSQL uh, databases just as a stepping stone to see how they work, uh, caching is a good example. Another one right. is analytics. Uh, if for some reason, you know, part of the, you know, like an increment, uh, analytics don't have to be totally 100% accurate, I guess. Uh, if right. you, if, you know, it's just if it's so not, much it, data. It's it, like, you know, one data point is not strong enough to influence the whole thing. You know, it's very resilient to sort of data oddities. Yeah. And I mean, like if you're looking at your graphs and, and looking at like the analytics of your site, um, and it might not be accurate for like, you know, a couple more minutes mm -hmm. and then the charts get updated with the new data, then it's not really a big deal. Um, right. When we talk about mixed panel, when we first started talking about mixed panel, uh, the fact that you can sort of put any data inside your mixed panel sending thing and it gets loaded and done very easily, I immediately thought like, wow, that is possible. I feel like that's possible because of DocDBs because they, you know, they're so resilient to where you throw in. They don't care. Just throw in your blob and however you take care of it. So, you know, I can use an API to send whatever value I want to mixed panel and it can put it in there and parse, you know, it doesn't have to parse it or make sure it fits in the data or anything because it's just adding it to the another blob, which I, you know, I think under the hood is probably something like JSON, which I'm sending anyways. So the first major type of NoSQL databases that we'll talk about is DocDBs. And these are usually, uh, so basically you store a giant documentation document. Um, and so like in Mongo's case, it's a uh, binary JSON, which is similar to JSON as mm -hmm. I uh, understand it. And the power of these systems is that it kind of, it's, it's made as a general purpose um, database. You can query them after the fact. You can say like, uh, so I like it knows a little bit, it's a little bit smarter than like a key value store. It, right. um, you can say like, I want to give me all the documents that have a column of, in, you know, like, um, post IDs or something right. and where the post ID equals 42, right. uh, and you, you'd be able to query that. So that's similar to MySQL. Yeah, you actually sort of set up a structure in document. You set up a structure for your document. They're usually very flexible and very elusive what you can shove in that document. But it, it, you know, it's a little closer to our traditional database where you can say like, oh, it has this field and it kind of has this field. You know, and, and depending upon how deep or whatever the, the database, the underlying database wants to get, like how queryable they want it to be, you know, that's the trade-off of like performance and, and data. It's like they can like, well, let's make it so you, you know, you set, you know, very vague types and you can at least query loosely against those that's okay you know they they have a little bit more insight to the underlying data 
And a lot of times uh, in the web, you, you're usually pulling information based off one thing anyways. And so like, let's say you're pulling information about the user, you're, you're doing the my account page or something. Usually you want to see the profile about that user and everything all in one time. Um, and so why not have all that stuff in one document that you just right. you do one call and then you just parse through all that information that you normally have to do multiple selects to get. Right. Um, so the two major ones there is CouchDB, um, FriendPaste is using them. We talked about them in our show previously, and that no was kind of like a paste bin uh, service that me and Jade like. MongoDB is the other one. Foursquare is using it. Intuit, which makes QuickBooks, and Shutterfly uh, are using MongoDB. The the next major group is key value based, and th these are the ones that I've kind of used um, in actual projects of mine uh, recently, and the first one is Redis, um, which is basically a it's key it's like they call it a, a an advanced key value store, and what that means is so like I, we 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 did a uh, we did a show on Memcached, which was literally I mean just a key value store. You right. give it a key and the data can be anything you want. Just put that data in uh, and you can retrieve it back at any time. Uh, Memcached um, was memory only. It didn't have any persistence. Mm -hmm. um, they do have Membase, which they're work, um, working on that has persistence. But, and, and you know, Memcached was used by just about everybody. Redis takes Memcached and it, it adds some advanced features like you can store hashes, you can store lists inside of one key, you can store, you can do increment um, actions, you can do transactions where you do multiple things and it blocks out other um, updates so you can actually do transactions. Um, so basically if you think about it, anything that you normally do in a programming language like you have a, uh, an associated array or something, you, you have a hash that you have uh, associated with a variable, you, you know, you can, I mean, that's basically what Redis is. That's you just key value store. Yeah, exactly. store, you know, like if you have a hash of values, you can store that in there and then retrieve it and then sort it. Um, you can store a list, like if you don't care about the order, um, they, but they do also have sorted sets um, and lots of cool stuff. Redis, I guess a lot of people are moving to Redis even just for a cache as it's, it's faster than Memcached now and it has some more wow. advanced features. That's cool. Um, so some of the um, companies that are using it is Blizzard. Of course, they make World of Warcraft, a ridiculously popular <laughs> game. Stack Overflow, GitHub, TweetDeck, which just got bought by Twitter. Um, so, you know, using masses, mass amounts of data. I'm not sure exactly what um, each of these companies are using it for. Right. <laughs> it, whether it be caching or like primary data storage, but... Um, Redis is definitely one to keep an eye on if you're looking at the key value based ones. Memcached, we did a whole show on this. Check that out. Um, it's it's been used by just about everybody. Facebook, uh, you name it. Um, but as I said, I see some people moving kind of towards Redis. Cassandra is another one which is key value based, but they they're similar to kind of like the DocDBs. You can specify columns, mm -hmm. and so you can do a little bit more querying with that. Uh, Cisco, CloudKick is using those. Isn't Cassandra's too big thing like it's supposed to be instantly distributable? Like it scales horizontally, like almost flawlessly was kind of the big kick, I thought. I don't I, I remember it was a big thing. It was, it was made by Facebook, wasn't it? It's an open source project made by Facebook. Um, I think it's an Apache Foundation. Oh, is it? Okay. It's written in Java. Okay. Um, 
but I remember his yeah, big thing Apache, was like Apache Cassandra. Yep. You know, it was like, oh, you can just add new nodes and it does. Re it's really good at sort of distributing it and scales very easily, I, I think was what so, I heard about it. So they, yeah, so it's uh, the, it's an Apache project. It uses D Dynamo's fully distributed design, like you were saying, in Bigtable's column-friendly based data model, which is Google's uh, Bigtable, which allows you to, and yes, you're right, it was open sourced by Facebook in 08. Ah. So Facebook <laughs> is also using that one. Mm -hmm. Um, the next one, well, actually, Cassandra could fit in this one, which is the column-oriented, which is Google Bigtable and HBase, which mm -hmm. uh, you have columns. Another um, major group, which I don't know as much about, and I haven't because I haven't uh, played with it, but is GraphDBs, and uh, it looks like these are really good with multiple relationships, uh, like product categories or like friend follow relationships. Uh, mm -hmm. You specify like chunks of data and how this data is related to this one, which right. is related to this one, which is related to this one, and so on. And you make this big network of things that are related, and you can kind of trace back to different areas. Huh. That's really cool. What it's how um, Amazon's using this one, which is Neo4j. Uh, wow. It seems to be a popular graph database. And FlockDB was another one that I've been seeing huh. around. Um, but this, so like, this is just an intro to them. I've, I've only really used Redis in an actual project and I'm using it in a small scale just to store little bits of data here and there. Um, but they're pretty uh, cool. I mean, the thing is they're not, they're not the Holy grail. Like a lot of them, the big argument comes from, it's like, people are like, these are so fast. They're so awesome. They're the best thing in the world. You should switch to them immediately. And what a lot of companies saw, like, I mean, uh, Dig was an, a big one, I think. Didn't they use, they, they switched to Cassandra or something like that. And they had major performance problems because it was so young. And I mean, you really need to look at, you, I mean, you can't just say you're going to throw every data in it or all data in it. Really look at your use case and see if these databases fit it. Because uh, a lot of times, it's you know, you're going to go a lot, you're going to do a lot of work and, and move it. And, and no one of them is the silver bullet. Remember our, our classic term, you know, there is no silver bullet. But they are cool. I highly recommend you play around with one of them. Uh, I've you know been playing around a little bit at MongoDB. I, I like Mongo a lot, um, and it's it's pretty cool. I think I think you know we're going to see these getting a lot more traction. But I think at the same time we're going to see people developing proper use cases for them rather than just saying like replace, get rid of, get rid, you know, get rid of, uh, <laughs> yeah. get rid of MySQL and go MongoDB. And you're going to be like, well, uh, that's difficult. <laughs> it's not easy. So. Yep. Uh, take a look at them. That wraps up this episode of Face Off. If you have any comments, thoughts, or suggestions about document DBs or anything else we're talking to the show, go to faceoffshow.com slash feedback. If you haven't done so already, go to faceoffshow.com slash subscribe. Uh, give us a like on Facebook. Tweet us out. Send us an email. Love to hear from you guys. Thank you for listening to the show, and we will see you guys next week.